You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. My name is Diana Moxon. This week we are dedicating the show to the Unbound Book Festival, which kicks off at the Missouri Theatre this evening, with a keynote talk by George Saunders, author of the award-winning novel Lincoln in the Bardo. After tonight, the festival moves to Stevens College, where there are a multitude of author talks, panel discussions and special events all day tomorrow. And they are all totally free of charge. Later in the show, I'll be talking to two of the authors coming to town this weekend. Joanna Luloff, author of the compelling novel Remind Me Again What Happened, and Crystal Wilkinson, author of the gorgeously evocative Birds of Opulence. But first, we start the show with festival organiser Alex George, with whom I sat down earlier this week to find out how he was holding up and which of the dizzying array of events I should check out. Hello, Alex, and welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Hi, Diana. Thanks for having me back. I hugely appreciate you coming by the studio to give us the view from the cockpit. I know you are moving so fast right now that you are not but a blur to your friends and family, so this time feels especially precious. Thank you. Are you surviving on caffeine and adrenaline right now? Yes, and Nutella as well as the other core component of my diet at the moment. So uh, those those three things are keeping me, keeping my head on my shoulders. What component of the festival are you most stressed about? Uh, well, it, we're getting to the point now where the, it's turned into this this very fast-moving train, and all I can do is just cling on for dear life and hope that everything works the way it's supposed to, and that everybody does what they're supposed to do. Uh, it's around about now that I start telling myself I to trust the process, trust the process, and uh, because there is only so much that any one person can do, and uh, so I need to sort of let go a little bit and just hope that everything's going to go according to plan. Are you also the travel agent for all the arriving authors? I am not, thankfully, no. We have a wonderful, wonderful volunteer who who organises all the flights. She is wonderful, and uh, we couldn't do it without her. Do you pay for everyone to come to Columbia? Yes, we do. Gosh. And do they get a stipend too? Yes, they do. And accommodation? Yes, they do. You are just generosity personified. (laughs) Now, if I have counted correctly, you have 56 authors coming to Columbia this week from across the United States. Correct. How far do you have to cast your net to get 56 people who are available and willing to come to Columbia? You have to cast it pretty far, and it takes a long time, and that's why the process begins pretty much immediately after each festival wraps up. We give ourselves a few weeks to sort of draw breath and then we start talking again about what we want to do in the next year. There are so many moving parts to all of this because particularly when you're putting a panel together, you want to have people who can speak to the topic but in a different way. And there may be, depending upon how abstruse the topic is, there may be a big pool or maybe a small pool, but there is a pool uh, and you need to go fishing in it and it can take a uh, different amount of time. So, And of course, there are always issues with availability and uh, those sorts of things. So it's, you know, it's, it's sometimes the case that we have to, people are unavailable, so we have to go to a plan B or a plan C. And so, so that's why we have to begin early for that reason. 
most of the authors coming are busy people. Yes. Uh, they're academics or journalists. They run workshops. Mm-hmm. And presumably many of them get invited to a lot of conferences mm-hmm. and festivals. So what is it about the Unbound Book Festival that gets them on a plane? Oh, that's a really good question. I think one, what I would like to think is one of the reasons why is that because because I'm an author myself and I have been to festivals like this, I have always made it a priority that the festival takes really good care of our authors. We really try and look after them well. And I think that helps. And, um, you know, authors, when they come, they, they sort of hopefully have a good time and then they will go back to wherever it is they came from and then talk to people about it. And one of the things that has happened this year is that we've received a number of communications from authors who are coming who have said, I've heard wonderful things about this festival can I please come? And when the person in question, I'm thinking of one person in particular who's coming, is the, the winner of the Penn Faulkner Award, you sort of go, okay, yeah, that's fine. You can absolutely come. So we've so, arrived. So so we, as we, you know, we're in. This is our fourth year, and uh, with each year, hopefully, our reputation is growing within the literary community, and so it makes it a little easier each time to be able to persuade people to come and also when you look at the keynote speakers that we've had from Michael Andache to Salman Rushdie to Zadie Smith and now with George Saunders I mean the, the the pedigree of people that we've been lucky enough to attract that helps too because people sort of go oh well they obviously I'm not sure if they know what they're doing but they, something's going right so so uh, that that makes it easier too I mean the first year that I did this I was really just calling up my friends and going hey what are you doing on April 23rd can you come so so it's changed a lot since then. What was your impetus for starting the festival? Well, I had been, as I said, I I had been invited to various literary festivals when my books were published and uh, and I went to a couple one, one in particular in in Maryland that I enjoyed and one in Louisiana and they're wonderful events and I just thought well Columbia needs a festival like this as you know we're a town that loves its festivals and we're also a very bookish town so it seems to be a logical sort of thing to put the two together. I think our tagline as a city should be city of festivals rather than expect the unexpected. It feels like we're a city of festivals. So back in our home country, there are a ton of literary festivals, the crown jewel being the Hay Festival. And I wondered if you had modelled Unbound on any festivals that you had been to either here or back in the United Kingdom. Not really. Uh, I actually know the director of the Hay Festival, who used to be a client of mine when I was an attorney in London. It's a very small world. He's called Peter Florence. Nice guy. No, I mean, I, you know, I, uh, when I went to festivals, I I would take note of what I thought worked well. And then also, perhaps even more importantly, take note of what didn't go so well. And so then, well, we're not going to do that. So really, that was all it was. But what I wanted to do was to make it a very something unique to Columbia and so one of the things that we do is we we try and for example we always put together a bag of gifts for our authors and everything in it is hyper local so it's all sort of things of like a little gift from Make Sense and from the candy factory and just very very local things so so we try and be different in that way one other thing that we do do is to everything that we do is or almost everything that we do is a conversation uh, whether it's on a panel or you have two authors together and that is um, I think that works very well when I've gone in the past to festivals I've done both but I have had to stand up and just talk for 45 minutes which is which is fine but it's not as much fun I think certainly not for me and probably not for the audience either so having writers interact with each other is great and then the other important component that I really wanted to include was to make sure there's a ton of time for audience participation so we always have at least a third of every event is a Q&A 
So I guess those two things would be what maybe differentiates Unbound from other festivals that I certainly that I've been to. Now your big opening event is a keynote armchair chat on the Missouri Theatre stage with George Saunders, and he follows, as you said, in the footsteps of Salman Rushdie and Sadie Smith. Do you have a bucket list of major authors that you would like to invite to the festival? We do, um, yes, for sure. Who else is on the list? Oh, I'm not going to tell you who else is on the list. <laughs> So now, Friday evening's George Saunders talk is technically sold out, but there is a big but. There is a big but. Now, because, as you mentioned um, earlier, everything that we do at Unbound is free, one of the consequences of that, and I'm still not quite sure why this is the case, but I just know that it is the case, is that we always get a ton of no-shows. Somewhere between 30 and 40% of people who reserve a ticket don't come. And so what we always say is that even if you don't have a ticket for Friday night, you should come, show up anyway. We will let, the the event starts at 7.30 and at 7.15, we will let people who don't have a ticket into the theatre to fill all the empty seats. And so far, in the three years that we've done this, everyone who has shown up for the Friday night event has got in. So, yeah, hopefully we'll be able to do that again. I mean, Missouri Theatre is an 1,100-seat theatre, so if 30% right. of that many people don't show up, you've got 300 of yeah, these 300 it's, seats it's, available. It's a lot of seats, yeah. Okay, well, I, I'm in that crowd this year of somebody who didn't bag a ticket early because uh-huh. I was naughty last year and I ordered two tickets for Zadie Smith and then left the country without telling you. (laughs) So my two places are available. So this year I didn't take two, not knowing whether I was going to be able to come. So I will be in the line. All right. We'll see you there. Now, almost all the festival's talks and panel discussions take place on Saturday at Stevens College, where you have nine sessions of author conversations featuring 18 writers, plus 11 panel discussions with, for the most part, three writers discussing a particular aspect or subject. How do you even begin to map that out? You get a very large towel and you put it over your head and then you go into a dark room and wait for inspiration to strike. It's really hard. It's really hard. We, uh, you know, we cast around for topic ideas. And when we have those, we have a sense of which of the panels we feel are really going to be of real interest. And, for example, the, the one about prisons this year. So... Sometimes the choice of venue is dependent upon how big we think it's going to be. But, you know, all of the venues at Stevens are terrific and it's sort of an embarrassment of, of, of riches almost. Uh, so there is no, I wish I could tell you that there was some science to it. There isn't really any art either. We just, we, we just guess for the most part, but we, we just try and imagine what the various events are going to look like and where they might fit best. But when you start your discussions with your team Mm -hmm. a few weeks after one festival is Mm -hmm. over, are you starting with, let's just invite lots of people and then see what subject matters emerge? Or do you start with ideas for panel discussions and then find the people to fit? Right. Uh, Yes. No, we start with ideas for panel discussions. So, you know, we, we knew that we wanted to do one about prisons. And so there are certain topics that we wanted to address. I knew there are other things that we either couldn't find the right people or we dropped because we weren't able to sufficiently focus in and zoom in on exactly what we wanted to talk about. Because often these discussions, they start in very sort of wishy-washy. So, well, we could do a thing about this. And and hopefully the idea gets refined as as the six of us talk about it. But that doesn't always happen. And then we drop those and then we go on and, and look at things that are more concrete. 
do you have certain topics that only crop up once you have your confirmations for in from your author? So you might have people come in, you think, oh, here's three people that really would bond around this one subject. We sometimes do that with the author conversations, but we don't do that with the panels. With the panels, it's very much the topic comes first and then we invite people to speak to a particular issue you know, or they will have a certain perspective on a given topic. The other thing that we do when we look at that is to try and we try and mix up as much as we can the different genres of the people who are speaking. So we might have on any one topic a poet, a novelist and a nonfiction writer. So because everybody, depending upon how they write, they think about and they write about things differently. So hopefully the idea is that every one of those people will be able to add a different perspective to the conversation. Now, you have a fantastic website. It's really easy and clear to navigate. And you have great information about all the writers who are coming and the events that people can attend. But let's do a fly past on some of the discussions. And because I'm not going to ask you to pick your favorites, because you'll be like picking a favorite child, <laughs> I will pick a couple of sessions and you can tell us more about them, because these all are right. things that I'm curious about. So the first one I'd like to know more about is an author talk. So just two people talking about the merging of fact and fiction. Right. So this is and this is one that I'm very keen on as well. And I was actually talking about this morning and I'm actually going to be introducing this panel because I want to be there to listen to it. So we've got these two wonderful, wonderful authors. Jocelyn Cullity is a local uh, local author and she's written a book, a novel called Amar and the Silk Winged Pigeons, which is all about the 1857 siege of Lucknow in India. And she's going to be talking to a very well-regarded and renowned novelist called Chris Castellani, whose new book is called Leading Men, which is about Tennessee Williams. What these two books have in common is that they both take as their premise, um, well, in the, in the case of Jocelyn's book, an event that actually happened, this, this siege that I mentioned. And with Chris's book, Tennessee Williams obviously is a real person. And they've taken a grain of, of fact and spun a story out of it. In Chris's case, there is a, a summer, I think it's 1957, where no one quite knows what Tennessee Williams was up to. And so he has taken that and has spun this story out of that. And with, with Jocelyn's book, rather than the person, it's an event. But again, a similar thing. She did a lot of research, found out what actually happened, and then has written a fictionalized version of it. So in both cases, they are playing a, a, or performing an interesting balancing act between established facts and the story that they're making up. And there are all sorts of issues that arise from that process. Some of them are technical ones and some of them are ethical ones. Uh, and uh, I'm going to be paying very close attention to that because my new novel does something similar as well. So I'm going to be seeing what, what approach they take. I wondered how much of that discussion was going on in George Saunders' head when he wrote Lincoln and the Bardo, based on a true story. Right. has real quotations in it from things that were written at the time. Yes. But then so much fiction. <laughs> so much fiction. And also a lot of those quotations he made up as well. He really does. He's blended everything. Uh, so, yeah, you are ended up you, you end up sort of not knowing what's up and what's down, which I think is probably the point. Do you, do you feel like you have a sense of how much fact you should include? Should it be and what kind of facts should be true? Yeah, I mean, regards, with regard to people and it, their lives. It, I mean, that, that's a great question. I mean, I, uh, you know, for my book, which is set in Paris um, in 1927, 
there are various very well-known people who sort of populate the periphery of the book, people like Gertrude Stein and Ernest Hemingway and Sidney Bechet. And, you know, you need to make sure, for example, that they were there at the time. You can't, you know, you, you, you have to sort of... Uh, adhere to certain certain things but then there are other things you know did they say those words well no of course not because I just wrote them <laughs> so so it's it's always an interesting and you know the, the question is uh, how how much fidelity do you have to have to the established record and how much you would uh, uh, do you feel able to uh, embellish that another person in that category I'd love to listen to speak is Hilary Mantle and when he's sure at Wolf Hall oh, right yes that yes. would be amazing and because that again is is such a lot of facts in it, I'm mm-hmm. presuming, but incredible amounts of um, dialogue and literary edition. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a wonderful book. Another one I'd like to go to, because I'm interested in the environmental cost of fracking and what we're doing to our environment. Who is coming to talk about that? Yes, so we have two wonderful authors. Jennifer Haig is a novelist, acclaimed novelist, won many, many awards. And her most recent book is called Heat and Light. And that is a novel about fracking. And she's going to be speaking with Blair Briody, who has written a, who's a journalist, who's written a nonfiction book called The New Wild West, which looks at the effects of fracking on certain communities in the the West. So again, this goes back to what I was saying about trying to bring people together who write in different genres. So to have a, have a novelist speak with a journalist about the same subject, I think is going to be very interesting. But it's that's going to be one that is going to be fascinating, I think. Back to that fact and fiction component too. Right. For, for Jennifer writing about it as a novel. And then in the panel discussions, I want to go to, for obvious reasons, coming to America, ah, because yes. that's what we both did. <laughs> so I think that will be fascinating. Who is at that discussion? So we have three people there. And again, this is the same. We have a poet, a novelist, and a nonfiction writer. We have a wonderful poet called Sarah Gambito, whose book actually was just reviewed on Sunday in the in the New York Times. And her book, of, her most recent book of poetry, is, uh, is is about immigration, and it's also there's a lot of food in it. Um, she's also appearing on a panel discussion about writing about food, and there are actually recipes woven into the poems, which I think will be great. Also, Natalia Sylvester is going to be here. She is a novelist. She's written two books and her last book is called Everyone Knows You Go Home uh, which is a beautiful novel about a family in Southern California who have come across from Mexico and uh, it's also it's it's a love story and it's a ghost story and it'll make you cry and it'll probably make you a little bit mad as well but it's 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 a wonderful wonderful and very compelling book uh, and then finally uh, we have a memoirist Jose Oduña who writes about his experiences as an immigrant and that his his book is a memoir and he tells about his story so again three different genres and hopefully they'll all bring something refreshing and new to the, to that conversation and that is a panel discussion that you could really be on too because your book the good american was really about that coming to america it was that's right okay and the other one i think will be really compelling and a powerful conversation is the discussion on prison sentences with journalist shane bauer lawyer and poet reginald Dwayne betts and writer educator and activist walida imarisha that's going to be a powerhouse conversation It is. And one of the reasons why it's going to be so interesting is that these three folks, again, they write in different genres, but they actually uh, have very different experiences. So Shane Bauer, his book, American Prison, was named by The New York Times as one of the top 10 books of the year. It is a book that I have read and will never forget. It made me furious. He went undercover 
as a prison guard in a for-profit prison in Louisiana. And it's appalling and gripping and incredibly important, and everybody should probably read it. So he is going to be speaking about his experiences from that side. And in fact, unfortunately, Dwayne Betts isn't going to be here, but we have a replacement, Randall Horton, who, rather like Dwayne, he has spent time in federal prison, and he's also a poet, and he's also written a memoir. He's a wonderful poet. He's won many, many prizes. So he's going to be speaking from the perspective as an, as an ex-inmate about his prison experience, and that's what his memoir is about as well. And then thirdly, Walida Imarisha is, uh, is an academic, and she has written a book called Angels with Dirty Faces, which tells the story of three families and the effect that the incarceration system has had on their families and the, the cataclysmic effect that it's had. So three very different points of view. Um, but yes, I mean, this is the panel, I think, that I'm looking forward to the most. And when you're mapping all this out, I guess you're trying to work out in advance which which of the panels and discussions are going to have the most audiences and therefore which room you're going to put them in. And this one is in a larger room, I believe, isn't it? This is in the Mecklenburg Playhouse, which is which is the largest venue that we have, yeah. So in addition to all the panel discussions and author talks, you also have a schools programme happening, which starts on Friday morning. Yes. Tell us a little bit more about that. So Authors in the Schools is something that we began a couple of years ago. We do have children's programming on Saturday morning at the Warehouse Theatre. We have three wonderful writers coming in, writers and illustrators, and they come in and they're very entertaining. They and they draw pictures and they sing songs. It's all, it's all great. But we also recognise that a lot of people can't come out on a Saturday morning. Maybe, you know, the sibling has soccer or something that they're doing. So we began to put authors into the schools on the Friday and last year we put eight authors into 12 different schools and we had we had a, a walking talking author in at least one classroom in every grade from kindergarten through 12th grade and we're doing a similar sort of thing this year uh, we 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 hope we're hoping that we're going to get at least get an author in front of at least 2500 students on Friday and really the jewel of that particular program this year is going to be uh, in the Missouri Theatre at 12.30, Jacqueline Woodson, who I think is the most beloved and celebrated children's author presently writing, is going to be there and she's going to be speaking to a absolutely packed house of middle school students. So we're, we're very excited about that. And one other thing I would like to mention in addition to that is that on Friday afternoon uh, at Cafe Berlin, we have a, a, something called Poetry Abound, which is 11 uh, local poets who are going to be reading as well. So and that's from 4.30 to 6.30. And that leads me to my next question, which is on Saturday afternoon, you are also hosting the regional finals for the Louder Than a Bomb High School Poetry Slam at the Warehouse Theatre. Yes. From two till four. Can you sum that up in a couple of sentences? So Louder Than a Bomb is the largest poetry slam competition in the world. There is the, This is the second year that they've been doing it in mid-Missouri. And Kevin Caval, who is the founder of Louder Than a Bomb, is actually coming to Columbia. He's going to be speaking uh, at three of the high schools on Friday. He's going to be giving a poetry reading and appearing on two panels on Saturday. He's going to be a busy man. So with so much going on in one day and the sheer impossibility of doing it all, are there any plans to make Unbound a longer festival? We t- it's something that we talk about uh, a lot. We just haven't quite worked out how to unpick that particular lock yet. But it is something that we'd like to, we, we continue to talk about it. At least Saturday and Sunday. 
something like that because yeah. <laughs> there's things that I want to go to that are, are doubled up against each other so right. I need to make a decision and then if I get to one and it's full by the time I get to the other it'll probably also be full there's usually there's there's room there's usually room so you have a section on your website and it says how to fest so in the time we have left tell us how to fest well, the best advice that I can give you is to plan ahead of time if you can. So go to the website, look at the program that, that's there, uh, look at the descriptions of the panels and of the author conversations and the, the other events that we're doing and just see what, see what it is you want to do the most. It is, you're, you're right, Diana, there's always choices that need to be made throughout the day because we usually have five or six things going on simultaneously. So there is a decision that you're going to need to make. Uh, if you can do it ahead of time, that's probably for the best. You can also, if you want to get a hard copy of the program, they are available at Skylark Bookshop. We've got them out on the on the counter and anyone can just go in and pick them up as well if people prefer to look at actual paper rather than the screen. But really, that's the most important thing is just is just to plan. You know, everything is free. There are no tickets for anything. So it is kind of a first come, first served thing. So, yeah, that would be that would be my suggestion. Anything else to add? Anything you need people to know about the Unbound Book Festival? Not really. I mean, you know, you, you, you mentioned that it's free. That's obviously very important. We just would love to see as many people uh, as possible at the event. You know, we, we do this for the community. We firmly believe that reading is for everybody. And so the more people that we can have, the better we're fulfilling our mission. And in the Layla Rainywood Hall, if it's like it's in past years, it becomes a giant bookstore with just piles and piles of books. And it's like being in a candy shop if you love to read. Yeah, it's very dangerous. And and, and all of the authors who come also are signing their books. So you can actually have books signed, uh, have a conversation with the author on a one-on-one basis. Yeah, it can be, can be very dangerous. Alex George, <laughs> festival director, author, and so much more. Thank you for taking time out of your crazed schedule to come and chat about this weekend's Unbound Book Festival. You can make your festival viewing plans by going to unboundbookfestival.com and clicking on the schedule. As Alex said, all the events are completely free of charge. The festival starts tonight at the Missouri Theatre and continues all day tomorrow at Stevens College. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Diana. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPM Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be back with authors Joanna Luloff and Chris Wilkinson to talk about their latest books and the craft of fiction writing. Keep your ears close to the radio. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. My next guests are both writers and educators and are in Columbia this weekend as guests of the Unbound Book Festival. Joanna Luloff is Associate Professor of English at the University of Colorado, Denver, and is no stranger to Columbia, having completed her doctoral degree at the University of Missouri. Her latest book and debut novel, Remind Me Again What Happened, was published last June and explores prime of life memory loss and what it means to rebuild your life through other people's memories. Crystal Wilkinson is Associate Professor of English at the University of Kentucky and also the co-owner with her artist and poet husband Ron Davis of the Wild Fig Books and Coffee Shop in Lexington, Kentucky. Her novel The Birds of Opulence has won numerous awards since its release in 2015 including the Ernest Gaines Award for Literary Excellence and the Appalachian Book of the Year. It is a lusciously told story of four-generation matriarchy in a bucolic small town as they live with and sometimes succumb to mental illness. Joanna Lula and Crystal Wilkinson, it is a delight to welcome you to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I'm sure you both receive numerous invitations to attend festivals and conferences. What makes you attend? Well, they're they're all different. They're like 
you know, people with different personalities. So um, I like going to to many of them, and I, I I most always say yes if I can. I agree. Yeah, it's such a lovely way to experience literary community outside of our normal cities and um, cultures, and I think that it's um it's a lovely way to meet readers and to meet other writers and just to feel everybody's enthusiasm over books it's a lovely thing well i am delighted that you did accept the unbound invitation as i have really loved spending time with your characters this past week and the stories that you have woven crystal the birds of opulence is one of those rare books that as soon as i got to the last page i just wanted to go back to the beginning and read it all over again because the place you created was so full of love tell us about opulence and who the birds are (laughs) well thank you for saying that that's a wonderful compliment well, opulence is um, my imaginative town. I call it, I can never pronounce it, but it's like Faulkner's Yana Topwa <laughs> or uh, Ernest Gaines's uh, town that he continues to write about in Louisiana. So I, I think my literary imagination always lives in rural Kentucky because I'm an African-American woman from Appalachia. And so I always go to the landscape first. And those characters are characters who can continue to haunt me like many of them appear in my second book which is a short story collection and I started writing this novel and I kept saying you're not Mona and Yolanda you're you're not and they kept saying yes we are tell our stories you have to tell the rest of our story so I write what haunts me and so I was haunted by these characters and their situations and probably because of the thread of truth that's in it because my own mother uh, suffered from mental health issues for many many years And I had a hard time writing about it sort of directly. So once it was presented in my characters, it opened up this wonderful vein of my imagination to be able to talk about it. And it's something we don't talk about. Right. And I read interviews with you before I read the book. So I knew that the book dealt with mental health issues. But what I took away from it was this feeling of love, this strong bond of these four generations of women and this wonderful home that they created, despite the mental health issues that existed in it. There was so much love and support within that environment. And I didn't want to leave it. It's like a warm kitchen with you know, great cookie smells. It's like you don't <laughs> want to leave the house. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about Joe. I think I was already falling in love with him before chapter two. He has such a peaceful grace and a tenderness about him. And even though the book is about the women, the world seemed to soften whenever he appeared. Yes, I wanted to write. Joe was often in the background. and It took me a really long time to write this really small book. Um, and Joe was often in the background in, in different renditions of the book and I finally wrote a revision that said Joe's book, and I wondered what it would be like. I couldn't leave this book either. (laughs) It took me 13 years to write this book. But Joe presented himself, um, and I wanted to explore his story a little bit more, so I brought him more forward in the novel. And I think one of the things I wanted to do, I've often been criticized about writing so much about black women, which, of course, you know, as a black woman, that's what I'm drawn to. And um, I did want to write a male character that was um, more important than just being a husband. So I did want to make him a central character. And that's why he sort of comes forward. And I love Joe, too. Everybody does. Everybody in this town loves him, and all the readers love him. And um, women often come to me and say, where can I find a Joe? Like, I really need a Joe in my life. Do you have a Joe in your life? That's what they ask me. And so, yeah. 
And so I thought that that representation was important. I thought it was also important for him to, as a, a man from the city, to embrace the rural area and, you know, to start to embrace the landscape. Um, so I was saying something about uh, the rural landscape, too. Mm-hmm. I do have a Joe in my life. Oh, good. And that's, maybe that's why I responded so much to him, because he's just such a beautiful man. I, I loved him. Now, your, your prose is so lusciously lyrical. There are many times when I just got locked into a sentence. I just kept looping through it over and over because the imagery was so rich or the structure was so compelling. And another book that captured me in the same way was Arundhati Roy's book, The God of Small Things, mm-hmm. where I just couldn't leave sentences round and round and round. Do you think like you write or is that lyricism hard fought? I think, I, I think that I do think like I write which is so different from how I speak. Um, So maybe that's why I'm a writer. But um, I also think, I think like a poet, often sometimes more than I think like a novelist or like a a fiction writer, even though I write fiction primarily. And I edited this book as though it was a poem. One of the fights that took so long with the book as far as structure was that I kept thinking, this is my third book, so it should be like some big booming traditional novel and so I fattened it up and had it over 300 pages and it just felt so false it felt false to the idea of uh, memories to to mental health to community to uh, sort of ancestral memory that I was trying to get at and so then when I went back and I pulled everything out I edited it the same way I would edit a poem I read sentences out loud I struck entire passages, entire scenes, and sort of boiled it down um, to the essence so that it had not only what was there sort of straightforward, but sort of this implicit quality, the same sort of quality you want in a poem. So I love to hear you say that because that's that was my intent. There are definitely a lot of moments in it that read so poetically. But it must be very hard to murder that many darlings. I mean, oh, a, a hundred pages on the floor around your feet is absolutely. <laughs> heartbreaking. Yes, yeah. But I saved them. Do you think um, they may appear somewhere else? A- absolutely. They already are appearing somewhere else. I'm writing sort of a prequel because I know so much about these two families and what came before them. So I'm writing sort of the history of opulence and writing a prequel to Bird's Fantastic, but will it be another 13 years before I can read it? I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Joanna, with your book, I found it hard to know where to stop when I was reading. Remind me again what happened. Your three characters have consecutive chapters, so we see the story unfold from three vantage points. And I always ended up reading longer because I wasn't sure at whose truth I wanted to stop reading for the night because I'd go to sleep thinking about their truth. So tell us the premise of the story. So the premise of the story is that Claire, sort of the central character, wakes up in a hospital room one day and doesn't know how she got there and has no access to her recent memories. And her husband, Charlie, they're a little bit estranged and she doesn't know why, kind of comes in and uh, offers to take her home and sort of look after her um, back in Vermont. And then their mutual best friend, Rachel, is the sort of triangle to a longstanding relationship. And so all three of them have shared a kind of deep friendship and deep history with one another. And sort of under the pretense of helping Claire recover from this kind of mysterious illness, they're also trying to get her to remember 
old injuries and sort of slights from the past. And so um, I thought of it almost as they're each being sort of detectives into their own past, and each character has really high stakes in remembering things certain ways, but that memory is always subjective, and that they they need Claire to substantiate something from their own past, and, and she can't do that. So um, I also felt sort of tangled up in all of their subjective truths, and I guess what I wanted was the reader to kind of have their loyalties constantly sort of shift and in different kinds of motion and wonder who, in fact, is telling the closest version to the truth, if something like that can even exist between these three people. Now, when you say her recent memories, I mean, it's kind of 15 years of her life, 10 right. 15 years. So all her 20s are gone. Mm-hmm. Her memory of her marriage, getting married, early years, their relationship, the three of them, how they all used to live together in a house. None of that exists any longer. Right. And there is a lot of entanglement in the past, a lot of relationship memories that without her mem- remembering them, she can't really, there's no level footing of what her relationship is with these people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very interesting. So I'm always curious about the characters people create, whether they stay in their lanes, mm-hmm. whether they develop bad habits or endearing charms that the writer didn't see at the outset. So how did your relationship with Claire, Charlie and Rachel change as you worked through the drafts? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think... When I first started writing the novel, to me, Rachel sort of seemed the most altruistic and sort of the most generous at first, that her her intentions seemed the most good. And then that started to get really muddied um, as I kept writing this uh, this narrative. And I think that in some ways, she carries the most anger and hurt and confusion around the past. So it was really sort of fascinating to see her start to change and to become maybe a little bit more vindictive or a little bit more self selfish. And um, and Claire actually sort of softened over multiple drafts because uh, I think that in some ways I wanted her to be a prickly character. I wanted her to have a lot of flaws, but I also wanted her to feel vulnerable and understandable and a mixture of all of these sort of positive and negative traits. I think Charlie was the one that stayed the most consistent all the way through. I kind of understood his limitations and also his neediness and sort of his his vulnerabilities probably the most over the course of the book. I think I did definitely keep switching alliances about, you know, who do I believe the most? And it was kind of frustrating to me that Charlie and Rachel, they kept kind of pushing Claire towards, you know, tell us what you remember about this. And she kept saying, well, what is it you want me to say? Mm -hmm. Because she knew that they knew something. And I thought, oh, for goodness sake, just spit it out. Tell her what Mm -hmm. happened. Tell her what what you wanted to remember. Was that something that you intended for the reader to feel? Yes, absolutely. And I know how frustrating that probably was for a lot of readers. But I think that this is, um, these are characters who love each other so much, but are so... um, they're so sort of wounded in their own ways, and I think I wanted to to talk about silence and how silence can be difficult in relationships, but also um, their their desire to have her remember is a part of a sense of corroboration of their... They know what they remember, but if this other person can't mirror or echo it, what does that memory actually stand for anymore? They They need her to kind of fill in the silences from from the past. 
but they have each other to remember that same situation so it's kind of like they need this the third leg of the chair to agree with them that it isn't enough for them to agree with each other right and they've kept a lot of secrets from each other so in a way I think that they um, feel like they can't share everything right. with, with each other Rachel and Charlie why did you opt for that this first person structure rather than third person you know I sort of imagined this external listener who is almost a judge, you know, sort of sitting in and listening to these three characters. So I wanted them to kind of tell their stories from the first person. This is my version. I need you to hear it. And they can't tell each other. So here's this imagined kind of reader, imagined judge or audience that can receive their stories. And I thought the best way to think about subjectivity and memory was from the first person and having these sort of multiple points of view all in the first person create a kind of collage that approximates a larger truth and the first person just made sense to me in that way if you had to choose one of them to go for a drink with which oh, one geez. would it be <laughs> <laughs> oh boy um you know i kind of think um claire in a way because i think at least claire of the past i think that she's sort of the most fun she knows how to really tell a story and um, she's filled with curiosity, and I think that she would have, um, yeah, a lot of fun exchanging stories with people. And then Rachel probably would come in second, and poor Charlie poor would come Charlie. in third. Yeah, <laughs> poor English Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> Crystal, you were raised by your grandparents on a 70-acre farm in rural Appalachia, where you were encouraged to roam the landscape, explore your imagination, and to write. How did that active solitude shape you as a writer? I mean, I think it's absolutely made me who I am in all ways, in both positive ways and sort of neutral ways. You know, I think that even though I do what I do, I'm still basically a shy person and an introvert and I think that it began long ago you know I, I prefer and I was an only child too on top of that um, so I think that sort of preference for solitude and lots of landscape between me and another person <laughs> uh, but at the same time that's a great incubator for a writer being alone with your imagination and I think it informs you know not only the landscape but that sort of Solitude and the absence of solitude. Light, the way that I use light when I'm writing. Nature, all of that was very ingrained in me very early. Do you think you would have been a writer no matter where you lived? Or do you think that landscape made you a writer? Or that, that, that time that you had, that solitude that you had? Well, I think I probably was, you know, as far as my, like sort of my spiritual philosophy, I think we're born to be whoever we are and and we either fall into that or we sort of fight against it all of our lives you know there are people who are not doing what they were born to do and so I see them and you know and a part of it's I won't even say it's imagination I think I've sort of intuit like oh that person that's not what they should be doing <laughs> so I think that I'm that even if I lived somewhere else, I would have done it. I probably would have been a different kind of writer, but I think I was born to be a writer. Do you worry about the lack of solitude available to current and future generations? We, we're never alone any longer. Absolutely. Yeah, and I also worry about our inability, many of us, to, to connect with, with nature. 
um, not only solitude, people don't know how to be by themselves. Children, like I watched the children in my life, in my life who have always been in the city, and I sort of feel sad for them because they don't know how to be by themselves. Like, I need somebody to play with, they say all the time. Right. Or they're on a device. And yes. they don't read books. I, my, yeah. my niece is now 16, and she has never been a reader. She's always watched television. She's fascinated by digital media. Right. But uh, they always, my brother always tells me, well, she's not like you. She doesn't like to read. And that just makes, breaks my heart. Yeah. Because so much of my imagination and the joy in my life has come from, from books, yeah. from other people's worlds. So I, I yeah. worry about what, how that's going to affect generations to come. Absolutely. And, and books, you know, and again, it was my grandparents, but those books shaped me early on because, you know, I knew how to read before I went to school. Uh, it's so funny. I, you know, I graduated from high school at 16, but it was all based on reading and reading comprehension. And I often joke and say if they'd given me the math test, I'd probably still be in third grade. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, now, at the center of both your books is the issue of mental health. Joanna, in your book, it's the effect of a virus and its long-term ramifications. And in yours, Crystal, the burden of chemistry imbalance and how it can affect multiple generations. And I was struck in reading about you both, how each of those instances relates back to your own mothers. So, Joanna, tell us about your mum and how her experience became the kernel for the novel. Oh, thanks for asking about that. My My mother, when she was... 45 years old and I was 19, um, contracted this very strange fever that nobody could really diagnose. And she lost huge pieces of her memory and um, never really got them back again and suffered from short-term memory loss for most of the rest of her life. And she once told me that she felt so disoriented by having to borrow other people's memories. And that phrase stuck with me. And it took me a lot of years to write this book also and to get enough distance to kind of approach that concern through fiction. And actually, when I was a student here at Missouri, we started exchanging recorded messages to one another where she would choose a photograph from her parents' photo albums when she was a small girl. And these memories were super clear to her. And she would narrate these stories of what she saw in the photograph. She would um, send me the picture and the recording. And then I would choose something from my life that she didn't remember, take the picture, record it, and send it to her. And um, those exchanges became sort of the foundational, I don't know, almost structure for the book that I ended up wanting to write. And I also wanted to think about how memory loss doesn't just affect the person with the memory loss, but that we all um, rely on each other to know our past. And when somebody who is a part of your childhood and your young adulthood can't, can't fill in those gaps with you, it's disorienting for those other people, too. So it was also important for me that the book not just show Claire's story, but these other characters and how discombobulated they end up feeling because of this other person's memory loss. Did she lose a whole chunk like Claire does, like 10, 15 years, or was it episodic? She just can't remember certain things. It was... Um it was inconsistent. She called it her black hole. And it really was about, you know, 10 to 15 years. And every once in a while, a kind of glimmer of memory would kind of come back from a certain period of time. Or, you know, it was really sometimes hard to tell. We'd be looking over, you know, photo albums. And she would say, 
oh, yes, you know, I remember that. And it was sort of hard to know, is she remembering the photograph or is she remembering the actual memory? So, yeah, it was, it was a big chunk of time. But what was really fascinating to me about it was that her distant memories were so clear. They felt like she was narrating a book to me sometimes. Did you feel robbed? I felt robbed and angry, and then I would feel really guilty and really sad. But I think that, you know, she survived something that nobody thought she would survive. And so against all of that, I had such a deep respect and profound appreciation for her strength and her resilience and her desire to try to rebuild what she had left. So she really is Claire. I mean, or Claire is really her. There's so much of Claire's personality in what you're saying about your mom, too. I think Claire is a more um, selfish and mean-spirited version of my mom. I don't mean, and I don't think of Claire just as those things. But I think that um, there are, the things that I admire in my mother, I also admire in Claire. But for fiction's purposes, I needed to give Claire a little bit more kind of conflict than I sort of saw in my mom. Crystal, I loved something that you had said in an interview about your mother about how you remember thinking, how do we know that she isn't the most brilliant of us all? What if she simply sees things that we do not see? Tell us about her and how she influenced your writing. Well, my mother was diagnosed as being a paranoid schizophrenic when she was 20 years old. I grew up most of my life thinking that she had had a nervous breakdown, like after I was born. So you know, as children are wont to do, I sort of carried that guilt of that I was the cause of my mother's illness and not knowing until I was an adult that she had actually been mentally ill, diagnosed before I was even born. So I I grew up with sort of the, the love and the fear. My grandmother didn't understand mental illness and my grandmother raised me, but she always sort of kept me at arm's length from my mom. Like my mom sort of desperately wanted to be a mother and desperately wanted to be my mother and my grandmother would let her to a certain extent but um, it wasn't until I was an adult that I would get to go on weekend trips with my mom or actually be with her alone so there was that fear um, there and I think that what I said in that particular interview I often thought of as a child like I didn't particularly like the way my family treated my mother and I realized that it came from fear because they were afraid of her and afraid of her mental illness because they had seen her at her worst I'd never seen her at her worst because by the time that I was aware she was already medicated and was already living a full normal life And probably if she'd been diagnosed today, she would have been diagnosed as bipolar. In fact, her psychiatrist told me that, that she wouldn't have diagnosed her as a paranoid schizophrenic. She would have diagnosed her as being bipolar and being on the bipolar spectrum if she had to diagnose her today. So I sort of grew up with both this deep love, almost a smothering love that my mother had for me. That was sort of, she, she was never able to act completely on it until I was an adult so she often treated me like a child she wanted to hug me and kiss me all the time which of course now that she has passed I've come to love like my young adult years I was just like oh my gosh please you know stop and I think I started that early on like if she's having hallucinations how do we know they're not like visions that she's seeing things that 
we can't see. And so I, that sort of carried with me. And maybe it was because I had a vivid imagination, but maybe it was a coping mechanism as well. Now, in The Birds of Opulence, I guess Lucy is the character that most closely resembles your mother. Mm -hmm. And she is the third generation. So you have a great-grandmother, a grandmother, and then you have Lucy. And at the beginning of the book, Lucy has her daughter, Yolanda. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we see a little bit like you're saying how you imagined your mother, that you were the cause of your mother's illness. It seemed like in the beginning when we first meet Lucy that she has postpartum depression, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but then that just never goes away. Right. And um, But then you begin to see how there were instances of slightly going off the rails in previous generations right. too. So do you, do you identify with Yolanda the most as the daughter of Lucy, if you had to be one of the characters in the book? Um... I think so. Yeah, I probably do relate mostly with Yolanda, but also with Lucy. Some too. I mean, I relate with all of them, really. My favorite character is Mama Minnie. Minnie Mae being the matriarch. She's my favorite, but I probably a combination of Lucy and Yolanda. Mm-hmm. They, they're all just they're all just great people. I, I, I feel like I have new friends. <laughs> So The Birds of Opulence and Remind Me Again What Happened are debut novels for both of you, both of you having previously published short story compilations. Now, as a reader, I'm generally not a fan of short stories because I miss the friendship that develops in long-form fiction. Like I said, you know, I feel like I knew everybody in your novels. And it's like only being allowed to go window shopping rather than going and buy something. So as writers, having done both now, where does your heart lie? Joanna, let's start with you. You know, I sort of cheated in my short story collection because it's a linked short story. So I got to carry characters over because I, like you, you know, I I start to feel really attached to them and want to sort of see them in other situations or with other characters sort of seeing them. But what I love about short stories is that you get to explore a kind of compressed world. And I feel like I get to play with language a little bit more, too, and that... I have more sort of investment in the sentence even because everything matters so much. There's such a compression of space. And I feel like the conflicts also can feel really alive and really, really contained in a short story. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I cheated a little bit with my first <laughs> with my first collection. Crystal, you were nodding in agreement. Yes. Um, well, my first collection was a true collection of short stories, Blackberries, Blackberries. The second one is a, a compilation too. It's a It's a connected short stories all on the same street so it was sort of a novel in stories and then to make the leap to the novel but the short story is my first love and I think because you're a poet probably (laughs) yeah the short story but even more than than poems the short story is my first love which I think is a perfect combination of of the novelist and the poet in my opinion, um, the short story is related to both of them. And I'd probably write short, short stories for the rest of my life only if I could. You know, I'm writing another novel, I'm writing a, a memoir, but um, if, if I could, if somebody said, you'll make a living and nobody cares what you write, I'd write short stories only. As a reader, do you prefer to read short stories too? Mostly. 
Joanna, are you a short story reader? I am. I love reading short stories. I almost have the um, the opposite reaction from what you said. I think that I feel so uh, I feel so invested in this small contained world that then opens up into this kind of possibility of the imagination that there's um it's such an interesting contrast there's such a finite sense of what a short story holds but then I feel like it opens things up so much usually at the end that I feel sort of transported into what could be whereas novels tend to feel I think a little bit surprisingly more contained in the in the worlds that they sort of show but um yeah, I feel short stories more in like my gut and in my neck and in my heart and in my mind when I come to the end of them, as much as I love novels too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always just feel kind of robbed. Like I, I want to know more <laughs> about the people. And then of course, in a short story compilation, maybe it's just how I read them, but I tend to, you end one and you go to the next story. And so you, you leave that world behind and then you're suddenly in this next world. And, and so therefore I just kind of feel like I haven't quite eaten a full dinner. Mm. I haven't had ice cream afterwards or something. <laughs> <laughs> Joanna, I read an essay that you wrote for Literary Hub entitled <laughs> Why I Struggle to Relate to Relatability. Likeability and fiction isn't the same as empathy and it's something that has been in my head all week and I've been Mm. mulling it over all week what is it that bugs you about relatability relatability to me feels like a very limited and maybe even sort of selfish way to approach reading or responding to work I can only read this work if it reflects something of myself back at me and I think that Likeability being kind of linked to that. I find, especially for women writers and women characters, this um, question of likeability comes up a lot more than when it, you know, when we're talking about male characters or male writers. And so I think that I resist that because some of my favorite characters are flawed and difficult and don't always behave well or you know you wouldn't necessarily want to have a drink with them you know after after work and so I feel like sometimes relatability and likability get conflated into this um, limited way of exposing yourself to the worlds of of a book and I I always want to go into reading as a way of, of learning something new or something that sort of surprises me or something outside of my experience even when books feel like they have a kind of universal quality I don't need myself you know respect uh, reflected right back at me I feel like that feels less expansive and more limiting to me it's also a thing that comes up a lot in my students comments and I'm always trying to press on them like what does it mean when you say you find this character relatable Um, I feel like it's a word that ends up not meaning very much are you okay with empathy I'm more okay with with empathy. I think empathy sort of have its has its limitations too. I like I like reading with curiosity and a sort of openness and expansiveness is the is sort of my mode of, of wanting to approach the books that I read. Crystal, when you're writing your characters, are you hoping for empathy from the reader or are you not really thinking about the reader? I don't think about when I'm writing it's more like sometimes like method acting like I really a a character comes to me and and they're in a situation and I all I'm thinking about is telling their story as honestly as I can and I do hope that the reader is able to get something out of it what that is I really I hope that the reader is lofted up to another level of understanding is that empathy I don't know is that relatability 
I'm not sure, but that's that's how I frame it. Like I hope the readers lofted up to the next level of understanding. I know you said in that same article that you didn't like the idea of losing yourself in a story because you know, what does that even mean? But and and I feel like I. I do seek to lose myself in the story, but in the way that I become part of the world that my my writer is creating and that I stop thinking about my world mm-hmm. and that I can uh, invest myself in the character's interests and, and their flaws and mm-hmm. their curiosities and what makes them, why they are the yeah. way they are. So mm-hmm. um, I like to lose myself in a story. Yeah, I, I, that, that was maybe an overstated argument that I was making in the essay, but I think that um, what, what you're describing to me um, is actually feels like activated reading, you know, right. that you become an active participant in the world that's being developed. And that was sort yeah. of more of my po- point, you know, losing oneself to me feels like like a sort of almost escapist. I, I'm not even sure um, how I would describe it, but I love to feel activated as a reader. Well, I certainly lost myself in both of your (laughs) books, so thank you for giving me that journey. Crystal Wilkinson and Joanna Luloff will be speaking on panels at tomorrow's Unbound Book Festival. You can hear Crystal talk about her book, The Birds of Opulence, at the Writing the Rural Workshop, which takes place in the Stevens College Chapel at 10am, and she is also on the Craft and Graft of Fiction Writing at Stamper Common at 2.30. Joanna Luloff will be on a panel called The Long and the Short of It, which is at the chapel at 2.30, and you will also be able to buy their fantastic books in the pop-up bookstore at Leela Rainey Woodhall. Crystal Wilkinson and Joanna Luloff, thank you so much. Thank you, Diana. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts, and before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, we'll take a whistle-stop tour of some of the arts events that are going to be vying for your attention over the next seven days. We've been talking about it all through the show today, but in case you're just tuning in, the big event this weekend is the annual Unbound Book Festival. And tonight is the keynote event with George Saunders, the author of the award-winning novel Lincoln in the Bardo. He'll be talking about his book and the craft of writing at the Missouri Theatre. Now, technically, this is a sold-out event, but it is highly likely that if you turn up early and queue, then you will get in. The event starts at 7.30, and people in the queue will be let in at 7.15. At Talking Horse Theatre, the musical Daddy Longlegs is in on stage tonight and tomorrow, a story about a teenage orphan and her mysterious benefactor. Evening shows start at 7.30 and tickets are $15. There is no Sunday matinee this week. At the Columbia Entertainment Company, this is the last weekend to see the comedy Noises Off. The curtain rises at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow and tickets are 14 and once again there is no Sunday matinee. At the Stevens College Warehouse Theatre, you can see the college's new works... I don't think that's true, actually. Let me... Uh, uh, oh, Chancey, the Stevens Dance Company performs student choreography. Um, evening concerts start at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, plus there is a 2 p.m. matinee on Sunday. Maybe it is. I was thinking the Unbound Book Festival's at Stevens, but I guess it's during the day, so check on that anyway. At the Ryansberger Theatre on the University of Missouri campus, the play Alice, an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland, opens this weekend and runs for two weeks. Evening shows at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, and tickets cost 16 And again, there is no Sunday matinee because it's Easter Sunday. Saturday is Unbound Book Festival at Stevens College with loads of author talks, panel discussions, and events at multiple venues around the campus from 10 a.m. until 5 p.m. All the events and talks are free of charge, so it's all on a first-come, first-seated basis. You can see the full lineup of events at unboundbookfestival.com.
At Talking Horse Theatre on Saturday morning, Gotcha Costume Rental is starting a three-class course on theatrical makeup. The registration fee for the course is $10, which can also be applied as an in-store credit. Saturday evening at Logboat Brewery, Columbia singer-songwriter Noah Earl will have an album release party for his new album, Milk Fever. The event starts at 4pm and proceeds from all downloads at the event and in the first week after release will be split between the Missouri River Communities Network, Columbia Centre for Urban Agriculture and the Missouri Rural Crisis Centre. Saturday evening at Rose Music Hall, the Rose 420 Fest is back, featuring the Stone Sugar Shakedown, Cat Daddy's Funky Fuzz Bunker Band, and Arkansas. The evening gets underway at 5pm and tickets are $5 on the door. Saturday night at the Blue Note, DJ Requiem will be throwing down with an all-music video tribute for a 90s versus noughties classic hip-hop dance party. It all starts at 9 and $5 gets you through the doors. And Saturday night, Pearl from Season 7 of RuPaul's Drag Race will be at the Yin Yang nightclub you can vip meet and greet with her for 30 dollars, starting at 8 p.m on sunday afternoon at 1 p.m there is an encore showing of cat video fest 2019 at ragtag cinema if you missed it first time round, cat video fest is a compilation reel of the latest and best cat videos something apparently we can't get enough of a cinema ticket is 750 with a portion of the ticket price being donated to the central missouri humane society tuesday evening professional a cappella band straight no chaser are performing at jesse hall this is not a university concert series event and the only way to get tickets is online the easiest way to do that is to go to calendar.missouri.edu and search for straight no chaser and that should take you to the Ticketmaster page the concert starts at 7 30 and tickets cost from 49 dollars. and at rose music hall next tuesday you can hear former national poetry slam champion neil hilborn live on stage his evening of readings starts at 8 p.m and tickets are 16 dollars in advance Next Wednesday is the opening night for the 2019 Maplewood Barn season and they're kicking off this season with Floyd Collins, a bluegrass musical. The show has a two-week run and with it being early in the season, the show may be performed inside or outside depending on the weather. Tickets are $12 and the performances start at 8pm. And I am delighted that a few of the Floyd Collins cast members will be my guests on next Friday's Speaking of the Arts. Next Thursday afternoon at Studio 4 on the MU campus, there is a performance of Queer Monologues presented by the Mizzou LGBTQ community. This is a free event and it starts at 5.30. And finally, on Thursday evening next week, the MU Choral Union, together with the Columbia Civic Orchestra, perform Mozart's Requiem at the Missouri Theatre. Tickets cost $23 and that concert starts at 7pm. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.